Good morning, beloved. I wonder if you've ever known someone so bitter that they were like acid that ate away the relationships in their lives. Perhaps someone so unforgiving that to be in their debt was worse than death itself. You see, that's the kind of person that the Lord paints the picture for us of in that parable of the unforgiving servant. He was corrosive and his dark heart ate away all the goodness around him. This man owed his master the equivalent of, get this, 200,000 years worth of salary. We read, a, a, you know, however many talents. Um, this guy, he owed a debt. Don't even ask me how he used it. I don't, how do you use that much money? But that's not the point. The point is this guy owed a sum he could never repay, and yet his master graciously canceled the debt. And you would think that that kind of mercy would leave a mark on someone, that it would change them, but no. He goes out and he comes across a guy who owes him the equivalent of about 100 days wages. Okay, that's, that's not insignificant. I mean, three months salary is a pretty decent sum to owe to a person, and yet it's absolutely nothing compared to 200,000 years worth of debt. And for whatever reason, the man whose unpayable debt was canceled wouldn't show any leniency to his colleague, and it ended up costing him dearly. The effects of bitterness and unforgiveness can and do ruin lives. Have unforgiveness and bitterness affected your life in some way? Perhaps one or two generations ago, some wrong committed in your family left a painful ripple in the form of divorce or tense family gatherings whenever you get together for Christmas or broken relationships or, or perhaps even disinheritance. Maybe you grieve a once close relationship that's now filled with strife or broken altogether. Every single day we see the evidence all around us of the bitterness that people harbor. Bitterness eats its victims alive and spits them out, except that when we are eaten by bitterness, we're not victims, we are the ones who make that choice. And looking at how the culture wars are playing out right now, you might think that one of the prerequisites for getting into federal office is to harbor deep-seated bitterness and hatred toward those who are on the opposite side of your political persuasion. Or perhaps closer to home, how many relationships between fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, wives and husbands have been utterly wrecked by an unwillingness to forgive and reconcile. Truly, bitterness has taken a heavy toll, and it's tragic, and bless you. <laughs> is it any wonder then that Jesus teaches us that seeking forgiveness is a key part of our relationship with God, and that granting forgiveness to those who sin against us is intimately connected to our relationship with the Father? And this is exactly what Jesus is doing in the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer, which we're looking at today. And I'd invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 6 as we continue to study the Lord's Prayer as part of our longer trek through the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 6, verse 12, we see what's called the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer, the fifth distinct thing that Jesus teaches us to bring before the Father. 
I'm going to read the whole Lord's Prayer, though, to give us the context of how forgiveness fits into our relationship with God. And then we're going to read verses 14 and 15, because as you'll see, this particular petition deals with something that is so important that it is the one thing in the Lord's Prayer that Jesus comes back to after he finishes teaching us that prayer and makes a few comments on. And so begin, beginning in verse 9, it says, Pray then like this, and these are the words of Jesus teaching us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then a footnote there. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And so that's what we call the Lord's Prayer. And then Jesus makes a comment here on the fifth petition. He says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. See, Jesus teaches us to approach our Father in heaven, beginning with his exaltation and praise, the same way that we approach him every single Sunday when we come to him with exaltation and worship. We want God's name to be hallowed. That is, we want his name to be treated as holy in the whole world. We want his will to be done. We want his kingdom to spread so that his lordship is manifest around the world as the waters cover the seas. We bring him our needs for our daily provision, which also glorifies him because it shows that he is sufficient and we are dependent upon him. And this is obviously a prayer for those who have been forgiven by God and who have trusted in Christ alone for their salvation, who therefore know God as Father, which is why he teaches us to pray, Our Father in heaven. And yet, even though we've been forgiven for our sins, even though our slate with God has been wiped clean for eternity, we still struggle with indwelling sin, don't we? And so Jesus teaches us to come regularly to our loving Father confessing our sin and seeking reconciliation so that nothing would stand between us and the Father who loves us and whom we love. And this is the point that we're seeing in verses 12, 14, and 15 today. We are to always come to the Father for forgiveness and always forgive others. We are, we are to always come to the Father for forgiveness and always forgive others. We are to extend mercy as mercy has been extended to us, and we are to continually seek the mercy of God for the sins we commit against him. And now to understand the beauty of forgiveness and how Jesus sees it, we need to set it against the dark backdrop of sin. When you set something brilliant and shiny against a black backdrop, its beauty and brilliance become all the more beautiful it becomes more pronounced. And that's exactly what we need to understand if we're going to really grasp what Jesus is teaching us about the beauty of forgiveness. There can be no forgiveness without sin. Otherwise, there would be nothing to forgive, right? Sin has to exist for forgiveness to exist. And this is really where we see that what we call the Lord's Prayer would more accurately be called the Disciples' Prayer. Because you see, Jesus' disciples sin Jesus is the sinless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So we certainly know that Jesus isn't himself praying, Father, forgive my debts as I forgive others, because Jesus has no debt to be forgiven. He has no sin that he has ever committed. This is our sinless Lord teaching us, his disciples, to pray. The real Lord's Prayer is found in John 17 when Jesus communes with his Father before he's arrested and taken away to the cross. 
In Matthew 6, Jesus teaches us how to pray as his disciples, and central to our prayer lives is the need for forgiveness from our sins. But what is sin? What is it? How do we understand its nature? Does the nature of sin teach us something about what forgiveness is? And the answer is absolutely it does. Absolutely it does. In fact, we get two important views of sin from the words that Jesus uses to describe it here in the Lord's Prayer and in verses 14 and 15. And the first thing we need to recognize about sin is that it is a debt to God. Sin is a debt to God. So Jesus teaches us in verse 12 to pray, forgive us our debts. And we all know what debt is, right? It's when someone owes something to someone else. They could owe it to the bank or to a family member or even to society. So when someone commits a crime and goes to prison, after they have served their sentence, they get out and what do we say? Well, they have paid their debt to society. Or let's say you go to the bank and they loan you some stupid amount of money so you can buy a house in this economy. And then when you're done paying it off in 70 years, I mean 30 years, with interest, you have paid your debt. Congratulations, kids. The bank has your inheritance. Sin is a debt to God. We owe God perfect obedience. When he created Adam and Eve and placed them in the garden, they owed God, the one who created them to enjoy, love, and honor him, they owed him perfect obedience. And it was because they came into debt by disobedience that all sin and brokenness has filled the world and human history ever since. We, likewise, as God's creatures, owe him the same life of perfect obedience. Of course, here's the rub. We come from a long line of sinners. As Isaiah says, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And so we're each in debt to the Holy One. And it's more like the 200,000 years debt, not the three months. See, at the heart of all that God commands is this basic truth. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. You see, when we sin, we violate the holiness of God. We violate the holiness of God, and because his holiness is infinite, our debt is infinite. And so if anyone ever complains that hell is unjust because it's an eternal punishment for finite sins, the answer is it is sin against an infinitely holy God, and we keep racking it up. Hell is not filled with penitent people who say, please forgive me, I wish I could come over to you. Weeping and gnashing of teeth is the response of those who hate God perpetually into all eternity and continue a lifetime of sin indefinitely. There is no injustice with God. The great American theologian Jonathan Edwards wrote that our obligation to love, honor, and obey any being is in proportion to his loveliness, honor, and authority. Pause. How lovely, honorable, and powerful and authoritative is God? Infinitely. So Edwards says, therefore, sin against God being a violation of infinite obligations must be a crime infinitely heinous and so deserving infinite punishment. If there is any evil in sin against God, it is infinite evil. Friends, the only thing that you can do as a finite human being is to sin infinitely. Okay? You see why we are more in the camp of the 200,000 years worth of debt? 
And not only this, but we continue to rack it up as sinners who constantly rebel against the Holy One. And so our sin is a debt that we cannot pay against the eternally good, holy, and just God. And in verses 14 and 15, Jesus uses another word for sin that helps us get another angle on it. He uses the word trespasses. He uses the word trespasses. So sin is not only debt, it's also trespass. And the word translated trespasses means to overstep a boundary that God has set, to overstep a line that God in his goodness has set for us. If we as creatures are obligated to obey God's perfect commands, then we don't get to make the rules, which is why a pretty good response to a culture and society that wants to go its own way in any number of insane areas is to simply ask, on whose authority did you decide that that was where the line was? By what standard? Well, we open the pages of scripture and we see clearly it's by God's standard that we know what is good and what is evil. We don't make the rules. If you're a parent, you set the rules in your house. If you let the kids set the rules, number one, God bless you. But number two, God's going to discipline you. And number three, what are you doing? You set the rules, right? The kids wouldn't be there if it wasn't for you. It is your home. You pay the bills. They eat because you choose that they eat. Do you see? And when you're a parent and you're in authority, your children are obligated to obey your rules. And when they don't, they're trespassing on territory they shouldn't. So you set the rule. You say beds are not for jumping. And yet you find that your daughter is using yours as a trampoline. Not only did your mattress just die a little, but the lamp's broken too. I don't have any experience with that. <laughs> but she's trespassing on your bed. Do You see, she doesn't have a right to be there in that capacity. Trespassing causes trouble. And when we trespass against God in our sins, it causes a world of trouble. And that's why we are not surprised to continue to find all through scripture that you will be blessed for your obedience. You will be disciplined for your disobedience. Okay, that's how it works. Sin is our decision to overstep the bounds of God's law in our thoughts, words, attitudes, and actions. And by nature, as children of Adam, we are sinners. And we also sin by choice. And that puts us in infinite debt to God, a debt that we can never pay. And we're clearly told in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is what? It's death. It's death. This is the dark backdrop of sin against which the beauty of forgiveness shines so brilliantly. A beauty that's right here at the heart of the Lord's Prayer. A beauty that has everything to do with the gospel. You see, thankfully, Romans 6.23 doesn't end at the word death. It continues. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. <laughs> in other words, the Father made a way through his Son, Jesus, for our sins to be forgiven, which is a, a truly beautiful thing for people like us who could never get a shot at even ever conceiving of paying off the debt of sin that we've racked up against the Holy One. And so let's take a look for a moment at what forgiveness is. How do we understand it? Why is it such good news? You see, if sin is a debt, then forgiveness is the cancellation of that debt. It's way better than the 200,000 years worth, by the way, because we'd racked up way more than that. 
If sin is trespass, then forgiveness is waiving the penalty of trespassing. When we are forgiven, God treats us as if we have never done wrong. Think about that for a minute. God treats you in Christ as if you had never done a thing wrong. He looks at our spiritual account, as it were, and sees no deficit. In fact, he sees the credit of his son. He considers us to never have overstepped the boundaries of his law. That is, when we are forgiven through Jesus Christ, we're not treated as sinners as all, but as sinless through his son. That, my friends, is a pretty sweet deal. That's a pretty sweet deal. And the word translated forgive all six times in these three verses we're looking at today means to stop blaming and taking into account. God does not blame or take into account. And so in that, that hymn that we sang, And Can It Be?, it's right that we're singing, no condemnation now I dread. There's no condemnation. None, not at all. God considers what we've done, he takes account of it, and then decides to treat us as if we'd never sinned. And that's exactly what David is describing in the 103rd Psalm when he says, and he begins by quoting from Exodus 34, like Dennis pointed out earlier, the Lord is merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Friends, the east and the west are so far apart, they'll never meet. They'll never meet. This isn't like earth, where if you just go far enough east, you end up in the west. No, no. This is as far apart as you can get. When God forgives our sins, he takes our sins so far away that they can never find us again. Perhaps you are kept up at night sometimes wondering if your sins will find you out. Well, with God, they never will. You have his word. We're told that it's as if he casts them into the heart of the sea. He will never bring them up or hold them against us. And that's what's so beautiful about forgiveness, friends. This is the amazing thing we call the gospel, that in Christ, we can be forgiven. And in Christ, you are. And you might ask then, well, that, that's pretty good. And if it's true, if we are forgiven by the Father and he never brings our sins up against us, then why is it that Jesus is making forgiveness such an important part of this model prayer that he gives us as his people? Why do we have to keep confessing our sins and seeking mercy if God doesn't remember them anymore? Why do we keep coming to church and confessing our sins week by week? And this is something that does trip people up from time to time, and some people have left our church over it. Why do you keep bringing up our sins? Well, the answer is found in the fact that there's two types of forgiveness in the Christian life. The first type of forgiveness we ever experience, the kind that we receive from our loving God once and for all, is what we could call forever forgiveness. It's forever forgiveness. This is the eternal pardon we receive from God when we come to him, not as our father, but as our judge, right? Because when we come to God for the first time in repentance and faith, we come to him as sinners in debt, coming to a judge who justly could exact that debt from us. And we plead mercy, and he gives it through his son. And as our judge, he casts our sins as far away as the east is from the west, deep into the hearts of the seas, and he says, you are forgiven forever. By the blood of my son, you are forgiven forever. 
As eternal debtors before a just God who must punish sin, we can never pay the debt we've incurred because of our trespasses. But God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And as Paul says in in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he, the father, made him, his son, to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. That is forever forgiveness. God's sinless son took all our debt upon himself at the cross, and now we can be forgiven forever. Another word for this might be justification. Justification. The Westminster Shorter Catechism helpfully explains justification for us in question 33 when it asks, what is justification? What is justification? Well, the answer is that justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardoneth, Otherwise, he forgives all our sins and accepteth us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. When we are justified, we come to God as judge. And as judge, he puts away the just penalty of our sins. He gives them to his son at the cross, and he gives his son's righteousness to us once and for all never to be repeated. There is absolutely nothing, hear me now, you can do nothing to jeopardize your justification. If you are in Christ, there is no sin you can commit that is too deep, too dark, or too extensive that you should ever wonder, has God reversed my justification? Can't be done any more than Jesus can be held double jeopardy for your sins. It's done. It's done. He received our punishment. We received his righteousness. Now, we're looking at the Lord's Prayer, and I want to be very clear. This amazing forever forgiveness, this is not what Jesus is talking about here in the fifth petition. You need to understand it because it forms the foundation for understanding why we continue to confess our sins. Because whatever Jesus is teaching us to do here, he's not teaching us to seek justification again. You can, never get forgiver, you can never get forever forgiveness twice. The reason we can continue to come to our Father day by day and week by week as his people seeking mercy is because we have this forever forgiveness, because we are justified. No, it's the second kind of forgiveness that Jesus has in view here in verse 12, 14 and 15. The kind of forgiveness Jesus teaches us to make a regular part of our prayer lives is not this once and all forgiveness, but the all the time daily forgiveness. Okay, it's the all the time daily forgiveness. So you see, even though in our justification we're declared righteous in God's sight, we spend the rest of our lives growing in holiness through the process of sanctification, in which we are becoming more and more like Jesus, slowly, sometimes imperceptibly, but surely, because he who called you is faithful and he will surely do it. We still have a sin nature that dwells within us even as we are a new creation. How do we know? Because we sin. We don't love God with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. We don't love our neighbor as ourself perfectly. We still sin, we transgress God's law. We no longer need to come to God for forgiveness as our judge. That's been taken care of. We now come to him daily, regularly, and we should want to as our father. As our father. And how much sweeter is that, friends? 
to go from standing before the bar of God's justice with him as our judge to now being in his home, in his lap, as it were, being embraced by him as our father. Do you hear the intimate difference in that? And that's exactly how Jesus teaches us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. He doesn't start by teaching us to pray, our judge in heaven, that's our father in heaven. In fact, it's Jesus teaching us here to call God our Father in heaven that proves that Jesus has daily forgiveness in mind in the Lord's Prayer. He teaches us to pray, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And then he tells us in verse 15 that if we do not forgive others when they sin against us, then neither will your Father forgive you. Notice that he assumes the father-child relationship. He assumes it. He actually makes it explicit. And that means that justification has already taken place because nobody can call God Father who hasn't been justified, who hasn't been forever forgiven. Sin has been atoned for. Now we have daily relational forgiveness in view. And also, and maybe even more significantly, notice that if Jesus is teaching us about forever forgiveness here, then he's teaching us that salvation is not by grace alone. If Jesus is saying that you will not be forgiven for your sins ever, you will not be in heaven unless you first forgive others their sins against you, then salvation is no longer by grace, but it's by the good work of our forgiveness. An idea which should make every true child of God repulsed because we know that from one side of scripture to the other, on every page, salvation is of the Lord. It's by grace alone through faith. It's not of works. I mean, how would you even do the good work of genuinely forgiving somebody unless God had given you a new heart to forgive as he has forgiven? We know that Jesus is not talking about forever forgiveness here in the Lord's Prayer. He's talking about daily relational forgiveness. And so when we come to the Father for forgiveness day by day at home and week by week in corporate worship for the sins that we continue to commit as his children, we come to the one who loves us and wants nothing to gunk up our relationship with him. He wants a joyful, intimate relationship with his children. That's why we confess our sins continually. We continue to sin. We want that out of the way. God promises it. Why? Because he's forgiven you in Christ forever. So this shouldn't be an issue. It's like in marriage. When you wrong your spouse, your marriage still exists still exists. You don't stop being married because you sin against each other. But the quality of the relationship is damaged when you do not act in love and then you don't take ownership for it. Things can get pretty bad. And if you want to ensure a skeleton of a marriage, if you want to ensure a skeleton of a marriage, then make sure that you never ask for forgiveness. That'll do it 100% of the time. But if you make a habit of truly asking for forgiveness for the daily wrongs that you do against your husband or wife, you keep grace flowing and safeguard against the rot of bitterness sinking down to the roots. And I'm not just talking about saying, I'm sorry. Friends, that's American forgiveness. That's not biblical forgiveness. I'm sorry isn't a genuine apology. It's just an easy way of making it as painless as possible. Now, I'm, I'm talking about if you ask for forgiveness biblically, if you, if you come to your spouse or anybody else that you wrong with something like, I hurt you when I did this. I was wrong. Period. Stop. No excuses. Will you forgive me? 
Number one, that's a vulnerable place to be. And number two, that sets the table for grace. When you do that, it sets the table for grace. And when it comes to the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer, that's what Jesus has in view. We need to always come to the Father for forgiveness, and he eagerly stands ready to forgive and cleanse and restore. And friends, that is good news. Some of you wake up every day in a fearful relationship with God the Father because you see him as still the judge ready to snap you for every sin you commit. You better not set your foot out of line. If that's you, hear me now. God is your Father eagerly awaiting your arrival day by day. Not with a frown, never with a frown. You're in his son with tenderness, compassion, and mercy. This is good news. And with that good news, we also need a word of caution. You see, Jesus warns us about one of the most threatening things to a vibrant and good relationship with the Father. He tells us in verses 14 and 15, if you would look with me there, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. I know we have a couple more weeks before we finish studying the Lord's Prayer in detail, but we need to include verses 14 and 15 because they are Jesus' commentary on verse 12. It's the thing, like I said before, that is so important in the Lord's Prayer that Jesus comes back to it to really make sure we understand what's going on. Okay, so verses 14 and 15. Christ considers our forgiveness of others to be so important to our relationship with God that he expands on it here to make sure how being merciful affects our lives with God and with one another. And this really brings us back to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, 7, when he says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. You see, we live in a world and in relationships where we sin against others and others sin against us. And sometimes these sins are so heinous that forgiveness is humanly impossible. How does a young man forgive the uncle who sexually abused him growing up? How can a husband forgive the wife who's committed adultery? How can the daughter of God forgive her rapist? After years of demeaning comments and rudeness, how do you forgive a brother or sister in Christ who has torn you down again and again and again? I would suggest you likely don't have it in you. But God does. God does. And then there's the daily sins that we commit against one another routinely. But whether it's the so-called small sins or the really big and vicious ones, Jesus makes a sobering point here for us. If we as Christians refuse to forgive others, our prayers for cleansing from the Father for our daily sins will fall on deaf ears. Now to be clear, if we've been redeemed and forgiven, if we have been justified, then nothing we do will ever touch that. Yet, yet, if we refuse to forgive and then double down on bitterness, it will not be well with our souls. There is no such thing as a Christian who, forgive, who doesn't forgive, who has a good relationship with God. When we refuse to forgive, our relationship with the Father is clogged by joylessness, bitterness, frustration, hardness of heart, and sin. In fact, and this is perhaps the most sobering reality of all, 
A persistent and stubborn refusal to forgive the sins of others against us is one of the chief evidences that we have never been justified, that we have never known the saving grace of God. Because when we have been affected by the blood of Jesus and given a new heart, that leaves a mark. One of the marks will be the repentance of forgiving others. Unforgiveness is sin, and we cannot be stuck there indefinitely. The reason we cannot be unforgiving Christians is because when God gives us the new birth and puts a new heart within us and seals us with his own Holy Spirit, we begin to grow in the likeness of our Father and his Son. And how do you come to know him as your Father through the Son? It is by his forgiveness. It's, it's so central to his character as God that that's where he began when he was revealing his glory to Moses. That's why in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul, as he begins to unpack the implications of the gospel from the first three chapters of Ephesians, he says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That last part is kind of the key. As God in Christ forgave you, that's the reason. We forgive others because we have been forgiven an infinite debt by God the Father. And so we must not be under any circumstances like the unmerciful servant who wouldn't forgive the the, the, the 100 days salary when he himself had been forgiven 200,000 years. And what I'm not saying is that you need to be always warmly Oh, yes, I get to forgive this person who has wounded me so deeply. That is what I wanted. That's not, no, that's not what's going on. Forgiveness is a choice of obedience. And that's where we must begin. The first fruit of the Spirit in the list is love. And in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul tells us that love keeps no record of wrongs. We must, in Christ, make the decision to deal mercifully with those who sin against us. And of course, I know. I know what you're thinking. That is much easier said than done. And that's what I was thinking, which is why it's it's in my notes. So how do you forgive? Let's Let's talk brass tacks. How do you forgive someone who regularly sins against you, much less someone who has done treacherous sin against you? How do you do that? Again, remember, you in and of yourself can't. But God in Christ in you can and will. Some of you have been profoundly wounded to the core by truly terrible sins. And the first thing you need to know is that God knows. God knows. And God cares. And God grieves those hurts. Never think for a moment that he doesn't. And God promises that as a new creation in Christ, you are not a slave to the bitterness of what someone else has done to you. Nor do you need to be a slave to what you have done to others. Our daily relationship with God is related to our forgiveness toward others. And so, if we would be forgiven by the Father for the daily sins we commit against him, we would do well to consider some important truth about what forgiveness means and what it doesn't mean. Because sometimes I think Christians get caught up with, with a false understanding of what forgiveness actually is, and then they wonder, why is this not working? And that's because you're, you're on the false premise. You have the false idea of what it is. 
So if we would be forgiven by the Father for our daily sins, let's look at what forgiveness is. And first, I would suggest that you make sure that what you're dealing with is a true offense against you, is truly a sin, not just an annoyance. Okay, T- too often we get hung up on annoyances that aren't actually sins and we seethe and we brood and we suffer spiritual harm because don't they know not to do that thing that annoys me and challenges my sovereignty? This is perhaps where I get caught up the most because not enough people got the memo. <laughs> do you see? I don't want to... Jen, don't... <laughs> make sure that the Bible is your standard. Okay, make sure the Bible is your standard for determining right and wrong, not your own feelings. Okay? And certainly not your own sovereignty. If you're getting hung up on your sovereignty, sing Jesus is King. Okay? But also recognize that giving forgiveness to someone who asks for it, okay? giving forgiveness to someone who asks for it, is related to, but it's also different from standing ready to forgive someone. I'm going to repeat that. Giving forgiveness to someone who asks for it is related to, but different from standing ready to forgive someone when they come to you. Now, Jesus tells us in Luke 17, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns and seven times comes saying, I repent, you must forgive him. It's not optional when he comes and repents. You see, as Christians, we must seek God's help to stand ready to forgive always. That is, we must have a forgiving spirit. Okay? We, we, we can make the decision by ourselves to forgive and overlook small daily offenses. In fact, we should, right? You know, it says love covers over a multitude of sins. So there is a part to play where we just by ourselves before God make a decision to forgive a lot of things, perhaps most of the things that people do against us. And yet other sins are so disruptive to a relationship that forgiveness cannot happen unless the person in the wrong acknowledges that wrong and asks for forgiveness. And when they do, we stand ready to forgive because this is what Jesus is teaching us here in the Lord's Prayer. And so whose job is it to seek reconciliation? Is it the person who's wronged or the person who wronged? Or No, that's the same person. (laughs) Is it the person who wronged or the person who has been wronged? And the answer is yes. Jesus told us earlier in the Sermon on the Mount that if you're worshiping and you realize that you've sinned against someone, that they've got something against you, go, make it right, seek forgiveness. And then in Matthew 18, Jesus says that if you've been sinned against by someone, go and seek them out, that they may seek reconciliation with you. So no matter which side of the equation you're on, God puts the burden of seeking reconciliation on your shoulders. When the person repents, forgive them immediately. So as far as it depends on you, strive for peace, stand ready to forgive. But how can you forgive what you can't forget, especially on some of that big stuff? And that's where we need to understand that contrary to the popular saying, forgive and forget, that's not a thing. Forgive and forget is an American proverb, it's not a Proverbs proverb. We don't ever find that in the Bible. In fact, That's not how it works at all because the Lord forgives our sins, but being the all-knowing, never-forgetting, holy, eternal God, he can no no more literally forget our sins than he can make a rock so big he can't pick it up. He can't do it. It's not in his nature. And yet, what it does say is that he remembers our sins no more. 
And there's a world of difference between those two things. You see, forgiveness or forgetting is something that happens to you. You wake up one day, oh, I forgot. What do you know? Don't know how that happened, but that's pretty good. Except you wouldn't say it because you wouldn't remember to say it. Right? Choosing not to remember means choosing not to bring it up. That is at the heart of forgiveness. When you forgive someone, you're, you're committing not to bring it up. You're committing not to throw someone's sins in their face. You're committing to act as if it didn't happen. You're committing not to hold it against them and use it as leverage. And we're super good at leverage, aren't we? But if you, if you say that you've forgiven someone and then you use their sins as leverage, now you need to go seek their forgiveness for lying because that's not what forgiveness does. Okay, do we have that clear? Forgiveness is choosing not to remember. It's not forgetting. And so if you're burdened with deep and dark memories, bring those to the Father who knows. Continue to seek his grace to live in forgiveness of somebody else. Make that decision. And then lastly, I would suggest, and this is important, especially for the deeper stuff, forgiveness does not necessarily mean trusting. Okay? Not bringing something up against someone doesn't mean that it doesn't leave a mark that has to be dealt with. A believer can forgive their abuser or their rapist, but they probably shouldn't trust them, especially if there's not been repentance. Some sins run so deep and are so profoundly harmful to a relationship and even safety that while forgiveness may be given, wisdom needs to be taken about how to move forward with that person if you move forward with that person at all. And this is where wise biblical counsel becomes very important. The Puritan Thomas Watson said, we are not bound to trust an enemy, but we are bound to forgive him. And so what do we do with all this? How do we respond to what our Lord teaches us about prayer in this fifth petition? Well, to bring it back where we started and to keep it simple, I'd suggest that we always come to the Father for forgiveness and we always forgive others. If you've never come to God for forgiveness for your sins, then right now, I would plead with you, come by faith. Come by faith, because friends, remember that servant. You are in so much more debt than 200,000 years worth can ever pay. You are in infinite debt against a holy God who is also a just and righteous judge. That is not a place you want to be. But God made a way through Christ. So believe in him by faith now, and you will receive forever forgiveness. And if you have received forever forgiveness, and you are a child who can come to God as your father in heaven, if you're justified, then please jealously guard the purity of your relationship with the Father by confessing and turning from your sins daily. Keep your relationship with God free of the debris of unforgiven and un unconfessed sin. And make sure that as you do, you always stand ready to forgive others for their sins against you. There is no sin that you will ever experience from someone else, and, I, and I'm talking about the big stuff too. I'm not making light of sin. There is nothing that we can ever experience that comes close to what we have sinned against God. Because he's forgiven you, he will give you the strength to forgive. And if you're finding that impossibly hard, then I'd suggest that it's because you've lost sight of the gospel. There's a reason why we sang so many songs today about the amazing love. How can it be that, oh my God, you would die for me? When you remember that, when you live there, you will find bitterness melting away. You will. 
God can do and will what you cannot. So keep sight of the gospel. And I would simply ask, what are you holding on to? What bitterness has been calcifying your soul for so many years? Today, it can melt. Today, it can begin to lose hold. Where do you need to seek forgiveness? Take that step and don't let bitterness ruin your heart. Walk in the freedom of both God's forgiveness and forgiving others. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, as it says, and look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth, that includes bitterness, will grow strangely dim. And friends, I can't think, honestly, I can't think of a better way to begin to remember once again what God has done for us in Christ than to come this morning to the Lord's table, which by God's grace we do. In the bread and the wine, we see the broken body and the spilt blood of Christ in our salvation. We're reminded of what our sins cost God to forgive. We're nourished to greater faith and obedience. In fact, I would say we're nourished to forgiveness with one another. We're spurred on to forgive others as we have been forgiven. And if you're here this morning and you have not trusted in Christ alone for your salvation, if you've not turned from your allegiance to sin and given your life to Christ, then I would plead and just ask graciously, please stay seated. This is a meal for God's family. And judgment comes for those who will not repent of sins and yet partake. In a pastoral note, if you have trusted Christ but have not followed him in baptism, I would also ask you to remain seated. Talk to an elder after the service and come follow the Lord in baptism and then take the Lord's Supper for the rest of your life. And parents, if your child has trusted in Christ and you're convinced of their salvation but they have not been baptized, come talk with an elder. Get your child baptized and to receive that early blessing of obedience to Christ and then with them come to the table. I'm going to read the words of institution this morning from 1 Corinthians 11 as the elders come up in just a moment and then pray over the supper. As you take the elements, take time prayerfully to consider the things that the Lord has said to us this morning. Take time to consider his saving love for you. Remember that part of what it means to discern the body and blood of Christ, as we're told in 1 Corinthians 11, means to, to discern the unity that we have in Christ. This is a corporate family meal. And if there's something standing between you and another brother or sister that, that has not been addressed, and as you come to the table, come with the resolution to seek them out. That needs to go away. Only harm comes to the church when we don't deal with that. Consider any ways that you've damaged that body of Christ through bitterness and unforgiveness and seek God so that as far as it depends on you, we would live peaceably together. God is glorified in this and he nourishes us to it. And so elders, if you would please come up, I'm gonna read the words of institution from 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, your hallowed and glorious name is precious to us. 
you have put that name on us through Jesus and called us your own. Your kingdom come. We know that as we come to the table of your son this morning, we do so as those who have been forgiven, who have been redeemed, and who are being strengthened to growing in Christ-likeness. We ourselves cannot do this, and we would not pretend to. We thank you for your mercy and for the daily grace that you pour out upon us. It is a precious grace. We know that as we come to the table, we are doing your will in this, for you bid us come. Lord Jesus, thank you for your hospitality. Thank you for warmly receiving us to your table and super abundantly nourishing us through what you provide. We thank you for these very physical elements of bread and wine and, and, and the blessing that comes with seeing that you are our very physical Savior who truly was crucified for us and raised for our justification. And because of our standing in you, our union with you, we have communion with the Father through you and by the Spirit. Strengthen us this day as we come. Strengthen our unity and love with one another. Melt away bitterness that anyone may be holding on to. And may we remember again this glorious gospel by which we are made new. And it's in Christ Jesus, our Lord, that we pray. Amen.